welcome to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides with Anna Staber. We're starting our conversation this hour with the Alabama Supreme Court ruling that frozen embryos in test tubes should be considered children, and that their destruction, whether willful or accidental, is on par with the death of a child. The surprise ruling sent shockwaves through the medical community and led to the closure of several IVF facilities in Alabama. Joining us to talk about it is Dr. Courtney Karastas, a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and family planning specialist in Columbus. She's also a fellow with the Physicians for Reproductive Health. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you for having me. So you're a doctor in Ohio. Your patients are presumably also Ohio residents. Should they care about this ruling in Alabama? Absolutely. Although this is a ruling specific to Alabama, um, this could set a very dangerous precedent for patients in Ohio. This Alabama Supreme Court's ruling gives medically unnecessary legal protections to frozen embryos, and it'll have a devastating impact on people seeking to grow their families using any kind of assisted reproductive technology. So while this is not affecting Ohio at the moment, it's certainly something that our patients should be concerned about. Ohio passed a reproductive rights amendment in November that explicitly included the right to make your own decisions about fertility treatments. Is that does that offer like a certain level of protection, say, that could get in the way of a Supreme Court making a similar ruling here? That's a very hard question. I'm no legal expert. I'm a doctor, not a lawyer. But um, this new constitutional amendment has not yet been tested in court to see how it's going to actually hold up and to see if um, it's actually going to protect people's rights to IVF and abortion care. Then it may depend who is sitting on the court making those decisions. Of course. Because um, the chief justice in the Alabama case um, wrote a concurring opinion. And one of the things, I just want to read a quote from that opinion. He wrote that even before birth, all human beings have the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. So there's a lot of religious language in this Alabama court ruling. Yes, there absolutely is anti-religious language. I think it's really important to tie this into all of the anti-abortion laws that have been passed, the Dobbs decision. Um, We knew that after Dobbs, the conservative legal movement and um, conservative politicians would not stop at just banning abortion. This ruling is another example of interference in personal health care decisions, courts interfering in bodily autonomy, and really exposes these anti-abortion intentions to intentions to continue to restrict bodily autonomy, no matter what kind of decisions you are making. Um, And I'm very afraid that beyond this, actually, birth control could be the next thing that's at stake. I want to take a step back and ask you about the science of IVF so we can better understand what was going on in this situation. So can you walk us through the process of in vitro fertilization? So in vitro fertilization looks different for different people, but in general, the basic steps are that first, um, the patient will be prepared for the IVF process. And the first main step of that is an egg retrieval. So that might mean taking medications for a few months. And then the month before the egg retrieval, taking injectable medications, getting ultrasounds potentially every day or every other day for weeks on end until there's a good group of eggs that are available. 
um, an egg retrieval procedure is something done um, as an outpatient procedure under sedation. And the goal generally is to get as many eggs from the ovaries as possible. Then in a lab, those eggs are fertilized with sperm, um, sometimes from the patient's partner, sometimes from a donor. Um, and then um, those fertilized eggs become embryos. Um, at that point, sometimes the embryos are frozen for future use, and sometimes they're directly implanted into the, pregnant, the person who desires to become pregnant. That's the very basic overview, but there's a lot of nuances within that. Yeah, and these these embryos, I believe they're called blastocysts, if I'm saying that correctly. And it's like it's when the the egg has started its cell division, right? So it starts dividing over and over and over again. And when you hit a certain critical mass, you say, now is the time to implant. Is that kind of how that works? Correct. Um, it starts as a single cell and those double and they keep doubling. And usually around three to five days after that initial um, insemination or the fertilization of the egg, um, it's to that blastocyst stage. However, it's not a foolproof proof process. So many of those um, embryos never get to the blastocyst phase or they're poor quality or they already are showing signs that they're probably not going to develop normally even three to five days after fertilization. And so this is where we get into what it means for the Alabama court ruling in those Alabama fertility clinics, because at that stage, if you have uh, one of these embryos that's looking like it's not going to make it, those clinics don't get to make that call anymore. At least it sounds like they don't, right? If there is a family storing those embryos, it, it sounds like legally they need to store them forever right now. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, at this leads to so much uncertainty in the IVF world, which is why these clinics in Alabama have really closed or paused their operations. Um, we don't know, you know, if it's okay to indefinitely freeze an embryo, if that's considered okay or not, or if it's okay to use the um, embryos that are not developing normally for research purposes or to dispose of them in a different way. We also don't know if it's okay to do genetic screening prior to implantation, which is one of common, one of the commonly used techniques in IVF. So there's so many things that, you know, potentially um, IVF clinics could be held liable for if they're not, uh, if embryos are treated as children. Um, so it's just impossible for them to operate in a normal way at this time. Yeah. And one of the things that I find really interesting was um, there was a lot of conversation about maybe people moving their embryos to surrounding states or neighboring states. But some of the transport companies are also refusing because they feel like the risk of transport, particularly, say, if there's an accident, that they could be held liable in that case for wrongful death. That's completely true. The Supreme Court ruling was a case of um, embryos being taken out of the freezer and then um, – no longer being usable um, for IVF. So with transporting um, to different states, that's definitely something that's been of interest of people who have their embryos stored in Alabama, getting to them to somewhere where they could be used in the future for IVF, since the embryos currently in Alabama can't be used for IVF with all the clinics closed. Um, but it's a lot of liability to put on the transport companies. These embryos are very delicate. They have to be kept at a particular temperature and that transport process has to be done very carefully in order to um, make sure that embryos stay a good quality. 
And I do want to be clear that the case that led to this ruling in the Alabama Supreme Court is just a, it's an incredibly sad case where uh, somebody accessed where the embryos were being stored and dropped them. And they several families lost embryos and arguably lost tens of thousands of dollars that they had invested in building their own families. And, you know, I don't I don't fault them for suing. I don't fault them for being upset and angry and hurt. And I think like at the heart of it, it's just such an incredibly sad case. I agree. I mean, IVF is a long, difficult process. Many patients have been dealing with infertility for years and years or have been trying to build their families in different ways for you know, decade or more before they actually have get to the point of having embryos. So I certainly feel for the families and their loss. Um, I don't think this is the what they expected to come of their um, situation. Yeah, because I definitely like how it should be defined, how that law should be defined legally is at the heart of this question. Like, I'm not arguing with anyone who would say it felt like they lost a child because they had put so much time and effort, like particularly if it is your own eggs, right? It's weeks of injections just to get the eggs in the first place. Like this is not for the faint of heart. I think the challenge we're all grappling with is what is the punishment for somebody who perhaps willfully or negligently destroys an embryo? Yeah, I, you know, once again, I'm not the lawyer. It's hard, here, yeah. It's hard to, you know, make that, you know, particular call. But I think the families know, you know, anyone going through IVF knows that, yes, that embryo in the freezer does hold potential, but it's not the same thing as having a child with them. And that's just the bottom line. Do you see this as potentially not just, let's say, in Alabama, because that's its own conversation, but do you see this? ongoing conversation about reproduction, discouraging folks from wanting to get into the work, you know, wanting to be OBs and obstetricians and work in fertility clinics? There certainly are, you know, great reasons to stay away from this right now, seeing especially all the different ways that physicians particularly can be attacked. However, I do believe there's a lot of medical students and um, healthcare students of all types that really just have a passion for taking care of um, pregnant people, helping people build their families, helping people have the families they want when they want to have them, whether that's by providing IVF care or abortion care. And I think there will still be people drawn to this work despite all of the challenges that are put in front of us. Are you hearing at all like from other doctors or nurses or people who work with you are you guys talking about this case? Like, is it water cooler conversation? Absolutely. This is something that really impacts us and um, is something that, unfortunately, those of us that are really focusing in on reproductive health care and abortion law had an idea was going to be coming ever since the Dobbs decision. Um, Justice Alito's decision, basically, his ruling, you know, spelled out that this could be something in the future. Um, so we knew to look out for it. We weren't sure in what way this was going to come, but this is certainly a tragic way for it to be coming. And, you know, something we're discussing, something that patients are asking questions about. Um, and a lot of doctors actually have personal experience with this. Um, it's fairly common in the medical profession to, you know, freeze your eggs or embryos um, while entering into training that's going to potentially take decades of time. So that eventually once that training is done, people can build families. 
Yeah, I think that's becoming more commonplace. I'm hearing more and more uh, women my age, so over the last decade, uh, so I'm 40. But over the last 10 years, I've heard from friends personally and just people who, I guess, didn't didn't meet their person that they wanted to have their family with as young as they had hoped to. And it seems more common now to freeze your eggs. That certainly is true. People are freezing their eggs for eggs for a variety of reasons. I mean, and there's all sorts of reasons why people use IVF. Of course, you instantly think of infertility, but that comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. There's people with chronic medical conditions like endometriosis that need IVF, people with um, some kind of rare genetic disorder that need to do that um, pre-implantation genetic screening or diagnosis to make sure that they're not passing on a potentially harmful trait to some their child. Um, There's people who've had cancer and did egg retrieval prior prior to treatment and later can build their family using IVF. Same-sex couples, people choosing to parent on their own, gestational carriers, all sorts of reasons why IVF is really important, an important part of reproductive health care. Yeah, I saw a statistic in preparing for this um, that I think it was one in six or one in seven couples will struggle with fertility at some point during their time. And I guess we don't realize how how many families like turn not necessarily to IVF, but to like the variety of fertility treatments in order to conceive. It is quite common. And a lot of that is driven too by people waiting till later in their lives to try to get pregnant, um, building careers first, um, trying to go through all their schooling or um, whatever else before starting a family. So that does increase the risk of infertility or needing additional assistance, sometimes IVF to be able to get pregnant. At the beginning, you referenced concerns about uh, birth control and maybe that being something that could be impacted. Can you kind of explain what it is about birth control that has you worried? So the right to access abortion in um, Roe versus Wade was built on the same principles of the right to privacy as the right to obtain contraception. Those cases were very, very um, closely interlinked. And by overturning Roe and the Dobbs decision um, and saying that people do not have the right to make that decision between the doctor and the patient um, to end their pregnancy if they wanted to, that also really means the next shoe that could drop is that they also don't have the right to make a decision with their doctor about what's the best option for birth control. Um, The anti-abortion politicians, anti-IVF politicians, really at their base are looking to control women's bodies and Um, prevent this bodily autonomy that we all deserve to have. Um, So these are very interlinked issues. um, And it's hard to say exactly in what form the um, attack on birth control might come. Although there are, um, what I've heard so far is that there are some cases in Texas about parental rights, about minors obtaining birth control. So that's something I'm definitely looking out for, see where that case goes. Yeah. What's crazy sometimes to think about is, I think... Less than 100 years ago, you had to be married, and I think sometimes you had to have proof of marriage to access birth control. Correct. That was up until the 1950s at the Griswold case, so fairly recent history. (laughs) Yeah, you don't think about it since, like, I was born in 1983. Like, that was not the world in which I grew up with, but it was the world in which my mother grew up. Yes, yep. I mean, and there's plenty of Americans who remember the time before Roe and even some that remember the time before Griswold when contraception wasn't readily available. That was Dr. Courtney Karastas. 
a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist and family planning specialist here in Columbus. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're talking with the Ohio Department of Aging about a new tool to help you choose the right nursing home for you or a loved one. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. Our next topic is nursing homes. Many seniors hope to stay in their homes as they age, but this plan isn't always possible. For those needing to move into a senior living facility, the Ohio Department of Aging has launched the Ohio Nursing Home Quality Navigator. It's an online service that provides information about homes across the state, Joining us now to talk about how it works and how it got created is Ursel McElroy, Director of the Ohio Department of Aging. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you, Anna, for having me here today. Where did the idea for the Ohio Nursing Home Quality Navigator come from? So the Navigator was the result of the vision of Governor Mike DeWine in appointing Ohio's Nursing Home Quality and Accountability Task Force, and that was in February of 2023. And this group was brought together um, to look for opportunities to improve every step of the nursing home experience. And through the work of the task force and listening to the people of Ohio, through many listening sessions throughout the state of Ohio, we thought it was important to create a public-facing dashboard. Yeah, because one of the things that you guys heard from traveling the state, right, is that all the information that they wanted about individual nursing homes existed, but it was sort of scattershot in different places, different websites. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, There were federal sources, state sources, things that were, I think, quite technical, other things that were more focused on the resident experience. And so, we thought, yeah, this information's out there, but it's not really easy to access nor to understand. And so if we could bring it together and provide it in a way that was accessible, transparent, and easy to use, uh, people could benefit from the information more. It's always hard to describe a website on the radio, but I'm going to try. <laughs> the Navigator reminds me a bit of Google Business Search. There's a map of nursing homes in the state, and when you click on one, You get a bunch of additional information like the facility's, excuse me, star rating from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, number of beds, methods of payments, uh, health and safety violations. It really is like a a one-stop shop for all the things you'd want to know about a care facility. Absolutely. That was how we intended it to be. And it's a very useful tool for those who just need high-level information 
but it's also complete with rich information if you want more details. So the more you click, the more you search, the more detailed information you can get. Is it your hope that the search tool will perhaps incentivize nursing homes to step up their game, so to speak, especially since those CMS star ratings are included in the navigator? Yeah, I think we are really striving to be sure that we hit our North Star in Ohio. And that means having excellence be the expectation for every nursing home, no matter where you are, no matter what type of care you're seeking. And so we believe the navigator provides that transparency, certainly enhances accountability. Uh, and it's an opportunity to showcase what you're doing well and also to make information available for opportunities where perhaps you could improve, right? Ohio has more than 960 nursing homes. Do you know how many facilities are in the Navigator right now? So right now, all of their active nursing homes, so if you have an active license, you're included mm. in the, in, yeah, so it's a pretty So it's comprehensive, comprehensive. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. That's great. And um, just for folks who are listening, uh, what's the website? Like, how do I find the navigator? Right. So if you're looking for information, I would take you to aging.ohio.gov slash navigator. So again, aging.ohio.gov slash navigator. You know, one of the problems plaguing the healthcare profession is burnout and lack of staffing. And one of the things the Navigator talks about is like staffing, beds, those kind of ratios. Um, I know it's a little perhaps beyond the scope to hope that this would help with this issue, but maybe it is sort of like, oh, I have a lot less staffing than some of the facilities in my area. Maybe I should reevaluate this. Absolutely. So we know that, I mean, the literature has shown again and again that staffing certainly has an impact on quality. And so I think it's really important for people to know what the staffing is like within a particular facility. And so you're going to be able to see the staffing for nurses as well as other types of uh, patient-facing staffing. So we have aides, we have LPNs, and we also have RNs. And so it's really important for you to see how they're staffing, how they compare across the country, but also how they compare with their peers within the state of Ohio. Are you able to filter by things like memory care facilities or if you're looking for a facility with a particular kind of service? So right now with version 1.0, and that's what this is, uh, you can filter by location. So if you're looking for something anywhere between five miles or 100 mile radius, you can search that. If you want to filter by different star ratings, if you say, I only want those that are five star, or maybe I'm okay with four or three star, you can do that. If you want to perhaps exclude those facilities that have had any concerns around abuse, uh, you can take those out of the mix. Right now, memory care is not one of the areas where you can search for, and that's simply because we are in the process in our more refined version, being sure that we have the right data. What we didn't want to do was prematurely exclude a facility that actually offers that service. And so it's really important that we have the right data for that. And so that is something we're absolutely working on. Memory care as an example, wound care, uh, vent care, some of those services that are more specialized, but really important to be sure that they have the expertise to provide it. 
So maybe coming in version 2.0. Version, yes. And and we actually believe that version will be out within the next two to three months. Oh, so wow. it's not a long window that we're talking. And what I find fascinating about that is kind of, you know, it's kind of the way we search for restaurants, right? Like you're like, I want three-star rating and above in a 10-mile <laughs> radius, and I yes. don't want this, and I don't want that. Yes. And I do yes. think maybe that's where that incentive comes in, because if you have a two-star rating, you're not appearing in a lot of people's searches anymore. Like when they're going to the navigator to look, you don't even come up. That is correct. Again, we want it, you know, if if you're, if what's important to you is being certain that you have five stars, then the others will not be a part of that search criteria. You are correct. I think the other thing I want to point out about our navigator is it's not just the clinical pieces, right? That's really important quality of care. That's what you're going to get with the CMS star rating. But we've also added the resident satisfaction, what they're mm. what they say about their experience. And so you can actually click on and see what the residents are saying, what the families are saying, what their scores are, and how oh, it is like Google review. It is a full review. <laughs> and you can compare. We've also designed it in a way that you can compare side by side different facilities that meet particular criteria. And the work of the task force that came up with this navigator is not done. They are looking at other things like expanding the reach of long-term care resident advocates. Can you talk a little bit about the ongoing work of this task force and what other things we may be seeing coming from them over the next year? Absolutely. So I'll talk about some of the things that we have done and some of the things that, again, you can see on the horizon. One of the things we're doing is increasing the number of state inspectors mm. uh, to ensure facilities are meeting the health and safety standards. So that is our regulatory, our compliance arm. Think of that as the foundation. And that foundation must be sturdy if the rest of the house is going to stand well. And so we must be sure that we have those uh, inspectors. And so we're increasing the inspectors. Um, as you noted, we are increasing the number of resident advocates or what we refer to as long-term care ombudsman. And that's really important to have someone that is interested primarily in what's best for the resident. And so we have to have enough of those individuals so that they can have a regular presence in these buildings to let us know if there is a problem and to be the best advocate for those individuals. Um, we're also making certain that we pay nursing homes more um, when they take better care of residents. So being certain that we have the right quality incentives in place so that we can get that higher level of care. For the first time, the state will provide clinical training uh, so that the workers can learn best practices in caring for residents, particularly those that provide specialized services such as memory care. We're also working to get federal approval uh, to pay nursing homes to offer more residents the option of having a private room. Uh, I think we understand the benefits of having a private room, both from an infection prevention and control standpoint, but also just the dignity and privacy that people would like to be afforded. So we have a lot of things that are underway. Uh, we're working at a really good pace. Uh, as you can see by the launch of this here dashboard, we heard what people said, and we are doing our best to be sure that we can help deliver those things. That's great. That's a 
pretty comprehensive list. I think the additional inspectors, that was part of the budget, correct? Correct, correct. And and again, that goes down to that, you know, that's a big piece of that foundation. Uh, we must be certain that we have the compliance that the basic protections for people in place. And one more time, can you give us the uh, Navigator website for the folks who are like, oh, I really want to go check that out. <laughs> uh, it's aging.ohio.gov slash navigator. And in case you're just tuning in, it has pretty much all 960 nursing care facilities on it. And it's got all the details from its CMS star rating to resident reviews. I mean, how long did it take to compile <laughs> all of this information and put it all in one place? Because especially if you're getting it from federal sources, from patient sources, from like state data. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we heard what was important to people. Uh, we did a really broad sweep of what existed, right? what's publicly available. And then we took a lot of time to understand. So how do we want to present the information? Uh, but we didn't do it alone. We also relied upon 800 plus individuals to help us with the testing to see if they liked it. Does it work? Is it providing you with the information that's most important to you? So we worked, I would say, again, at a pretty quick pace, uh, but make no mistake about it. We had considerable amount of, uh, I would say, uh, manpower behind this uh, to make sure that we could get this done in a really comprehensive way. I know it just launched, but are you guys seeing uptick already? Like, are you seeing like, tra you're nodding, so I assume oh that's goodness. yes. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. And then we're also working to be sure that we can place uh, information about this navigator in the spaces where people will most likely frequent when they have to make these decisions. Uh, these are life-changing decisions, whether you are going into a facility for rehabilitation or if, in fact, it is going to be a long-term stay. And so being certain that people are armed with information uh, to make this decision is really important. And the other piece I do want to mention about our our navigator, which I think is, is really an exciting part, is that within this navigator, there's also information about long-term care more broadly. First, understanding, is a nursing home really the place or have you explored other options? And also, when you're choosing a nursing home, what sort of questions you should ask and what things you should look mm. out for when you have to make this decision? And then finally, with our as we begin to continue to add more and more we're also soon going to add pieces for assisted living, as well as other parts of the long-term care continuum. So stay tuned. It won't just be nursing homes. This was just step one. And my final question is, what has the reaction been from nursing homes, from care facilities? Were they excited about this tool, less than thrilled about being put into this system? <laughs> Well, I will say that one, we had good representation from the associations that represent the nursing homes. Uh, they participated on the task force and they also participated in the listening sessions and heard what people said they wanted. Uh, and so while they were not a part of the bill, they have been a part of seeing the demonstrations, seeing how the information is presented and everything we've heard thus far has been incredibly favorable. That was I mean, the facts okay. are what they are, right? <laughs> and it's us really presenting the facts. That was Ursel McElroy, 
director of the Ohio Department of Aging. The website we've been talking about is the Ohio Nursing Home Quality Navigator. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for bringing so much attention to this important tool. Coming up, do you remember the president's physical fitness test? We're talking about why it started, why it ended, and whether it actually was a good barometer of physical health. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Wellness Wednesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. If you attended public school in America between 1966 and 2012, you probably remember the president's physical fitness test. That gauntlet of exercises that included a run, sit-ups, push-ups. And those who scored in the top top 15% won a fitness award. Those who struggled to finish, well, they often felt humiliated. And potentially, it made them associate exercise with failure. Danielle Friedman is a journalist in New York and the author of Let's Get Physical, and she joins us on All Sides to talk about the president's physical fitness test. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Why was this president's physical fitness test created back in 1966? Yeah, so its origins actually date back even further to the 1950s when researchers discovered that the fitness of the nation's children was suffering, especially compared to their European counterparts. And this basically instilled a national panic that went all the way up to, at the time, President Eisenhower, that America was becoming soft and, you know, wouldn't be able to defend itself militarily um, against, you know, in the looming Cold War and whatever challenges the nation faced. So beginning with Eisenhower, um, and then through you know the subsequent administrations, it was it was basically designed as an effort to both assess and improve the fitness of the nation's kids. And the test came with a prize, well, an award to be exact, for scoring <laughs> in the top fifteen percent of students. Yes, yes. Um, the Presidential Physical Fitness Award at my elementary school in Atlanta. If you if you earned that award, your name was painted on the gym wall um, around a presidential seal. And in time, there were sort of there were other honors given that were essentially like participation awards. Um, but um, but the kids that that were really the top contenders um, were, were were celebrated and everybody else knew who they were. Yeah, I will say I was always solidly like middle of the pack. Like I never got the award, but I never struggled to finish. Mm. But for those who did struggle, the experience shaped the way they thought about gym class and physical fitness for years. You can read very, very sad stories about the ways in which they felt humiliated and picked on for not being able to do it. 
Absolutely. And yeah, this was something that I had encountered in my reporting before writing this piece. And then the comment section of the story really makes that point clear. Um, and I think actually, even for kids who were athletically inclined or, or, who, or who might have finished in the middle, there was always there was often one event that they really struggled with. Um, for many, it was the pull-ups. Uh, for others, it was sit and reach. And so even if they had, you know, some positive feelings toward exercise, they also associated this test, like you said, with failure. Um, and then and then for the ones who who really struggled with, mo you know, many of the events, it could be a really mortifying experience that they dreaded every year. And I, I think, I mean, I've seen in my reporting that so many Americans have had to work to overcome what they experienced in, P in PE class, especially around this test, and to learn to experience joy in movement and, and not associate it with shame. And Barack Obama ended the test in 2012, replacing it with something called the fitness Graham, which doesn't have that same compete against your classmates dynamic, right? Exactly. It really downplays the competitive nature. Um, you know, you are still your your fitness is still being assessed in public, but um, it's much more about personal health and improvement and um, and developing lifelong movement habits. Let's talk about the test itself. So you asked a bunch of experts to weigh in on the different challenges and whether they're good barometers of physical fitness. The first one is that one mile run. So good or bad? <laughs> um, yes. And we. I should say also, I was mostly um, asking them to consider these tests through the lens of how an adult might experience them. So we weren't really looking at youth fitness. Um, the overall thing, and this applies to the mile run and, and pretty much every other event, um, was that by, you know, over-focusing on numbers, on speed, on some kind of arbitrary standard, you're doing yourself a disservice because there is not fitness tests are not one size fits all. You know, we we each bring our own unique physiology to exercise and um the, the goal is to feel good while you're moving. So to get back to your actual question, if you're somebody who exercises regularly, you run, you really enjoy, you know, testing your limit, your speed, you're going for PRs. Yeah, the, the mile run, seeing how fast you can run a mile is, is a good measure of your aerobic capacity um, and, and health. But for everyone else who doesn't fit that description, um, there are other ways to go about it. You know, there's no shame in finding a pace that feels good to you, a conversational pace, and then maybe having the goal of gradually covering that same distance um, in a way that feels less exhaustive, basically same distance, but feel better while doing it. Yeah. One of the things I liked about the article is you said it's not about how fast you finish, but how much you're challenging yourself. So exactly. Someone who's running an 11 minute mile pace might be working a lot harder than someone running an eight minute mile for whom that's a jog. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. The the 
level of perceived exertion is everything. Um, and I've actually written in the past about how I'm a, well, I've come to be a proud, slow runner. And, you know, Me you too. can argue. Yeah, it's, you can definitely make the case that running, you know, a six hour marathon <laughs> requires a lot more grit and mental fortitude uh, than running a super fast one. But I'm, I'm biased as a slow runner there. Next was the, uh, the dreaded pull up where you were asked to do as many as you could without stopping. So what did experts have to say about the pull-up? Yeah, and so schools had the option to offer either the pull-up or the push-up. Um, and in some cases, it came down to whether they actually had a, a pull-up bar. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a terrible assessment. It is a, it, it, it's a good measure of upper body strength and grip strength, which we know is important. But many people, unless they've been specifically training to do pull-ups, just are not capable. I was one of them. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think that that feeling of just hanging there, there's, there's something especially um, discouraging about just hanging from a bar and not being able to lift yourself up. But there are also ways, like I said, to train for it. And I recently discovered um, at the gym, the assisted pull-up where you use a resistance band, you're basically standing on kind of a trampoline to pull yourself up. And um, that was, I think, a very healing experience <laughs> of being able to do it with a little help. And hopefully someday I'll be able to do the, the real thing. Yeah. So I want to talk about then about push-ups. So the test, again, asks kids to do as many as possible without stopping. And one of the things you talked about that I think is so important is, you know, doing as many as possible is interesting and it's kind of cool to see like where you're at, but form is so important in a push-up. Yes. And all of the experts I interviewed agreed that the push-up is really the gold standard for measuring total body fitness. Um, we don't we think of it more as kind of an upper body, maybe core exercise, but you're really, if you're doing it correctly, using your whole body from head to your toes. Um, it's also an endurance test. But once your shoulders start to slope and you're getting your neck muscles involved and, you know, if your back starts to dip, it can really do more harm than good. So if you're new to push-ups, start by doing a plank. You can do even a modified plank. And the goal is to just perfect the form so that you're working your way up and you're you're reaping the benefits without injuring yourself in the process. Um, but if you've ever wondered, is it worth it? The experts agreed, yes. Being able to do a push-up and do it properly um, can really benefit you in the long run. And you can start on your knees and build up to actually doing them on your toes. Yes, yes. There is no shame in doing modified anything. Um, it's better, much better to meet your body where it is and build that strength um, than to attempt to do it, you know, all out incorrectly. Yeah, the number of people I've seen at like the gym doing push-ups with like their butt up in the air. <laughs> yeah. Just like, mm, not, yeah. Not exactly what we're looking for, but. No. Uh, moving on to sit-ups. So this exercise was actually timed and it was how many sit-ups you could do in a minute, usually like with another student holding onto your feet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sitting on your feet at my school, which was <laughs> um, added to the whole, the visceral experience. Um, yeah, I, you know, I would say the experts I spoke to were 
were a bit mixed on sit-ups. Um, some said, you know, they work for some people. Don't You don't have to totally toss them out. But almost everyone agreed that planks were better for developing core strength because sit-ups or curl-ups are really only working the front abdominals as opposed to the full cylinder of core muscles. And with curl-ups in particular, because we spend so much of our, many of us who work behind, you know, computers and desks spend so much of our days in that C-shaped curled position, uh, it, it's detrimental to spend more time, the time that you should be counteracting that in that same curled shape. And anyone who's ever done a plank knows, like, you will viscerally feel the full length of a minute when oh, you're yes. trying to do <laughs> It's the longest minute you'll ever experience. <laughs> then there was the the shuttle run where you sprinted back and forth between two points while like grabbing and dropping different objects. And it was supposed to test your your speed and your agility. So mm-hmm. what did the experts say? So yeah, the 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 shuttle run has it's been um stashed from, you know, present day fitness assessments. And it was not recommended for adults unless you are already essentially doing agility training um, or you're playing a sport that requires a lot of uh, quick turnarounds and side to side movements. Because, um, I mean, as one sports medicine physician told me, when, when he thinks about that test, he just thinks about injury. Where as adults, <laughs> <laughs> these are not movements that we're usually doing in our daily lives. Um, and so the shuttle, the shuttle run in a lot of fitness programs, athletic programs has been replaced by something called the beep test or the pacer test, which, uh, has also actually replaced the mile run in a lot of, in a lot of, um, environments, but it's basically, it's similar to the shuttle run, but you're not having to turn around on a dime. So you're running back and forth. It gets fat, it gets uh, progressively faster, but your risk of injury is lower. And finally, there was the V-sit, which apparently was supposed to be done with some sort of sit-and-reach ruler box. I I did the spread leg V. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If your school owned this box with a ruler on it, it was the traditional sit-and-reach, but many didn't. And then you could you could completely replicate it with the, the V-sit. And that was testing lower back and hamstring flexibility. Um, but it did favor people with certain body types. If you happen to have, say, short arms or really long legs or just, you know, your 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 uh, physique did not lend itself, you, you were not, you know, you, you weren't going to score in the top 15%. Um, that said, experts do see it as a useful measure of, of our flexibility when we're not comparing ourselves to others. Being able to touch your toes, reach your feet is incredibly important for functional fitness in daily life, especially as we get older. So, you know, having an idea of what your flexibility is and working on it is certainly a worthwhile goal. I found it fascinating that you had somebody who could do splits in all different directions, but scored low on the V-SIT test. He was so funny. Yes, this was a personal trainer in New York who loved the presidential physical fitness test because uh he scored amazingly on everything except for the sit and reach it just he just felt like his body you know wasn't able to pull it off so um he he definitely he made sure you know he pointed out that he could do all those splits but even still 
It was actually very cathartic for me as somebody with longer legs. Uh, I felt very validated by the expert opinions on this one. <laughs> yes, yes. It was really fascinating. I will say, I mean, these are folks who have gone into fitness as careers. And with the exception of the person I mentioned, and I think one other expert I spoke to, everybody else hated it. They were like, they had to overcome it to do the work they do now. That's so fascinating, even for people who have made fitness a lifelong yes. career or passion. Exactly. Exactly. I yeah. think it's because it is hard to do it in front of everyone and to be judged in front of everyone and ranked. Like it's, it feels like a really vulnerable moment. Very vulnerable. And, you know, thinking back on like we were just talking about the fact that students had to hold down your feet or sit on your feet or during the sit and reach, they would keep your, you know, press your knees down to make sure you didn't cheat and bend your legs. It was very intimate. It, it felt very performative. Um, and I do think, you know, while it might have been well-intentioned, it, it missed the point that is now being corrected in, in a lot of schools, but that, um, it's athleticism movement is not for the few. We all benefit when we develop, you know, when we learn to love movement and figure out what works best for us. So it sounds like these are all great exercises to compete against yourself, but maybe don't make it a competition with everybody else. Exactly. <laughs> Unless you love competition and your friends do too. But yeah, with the exception of maybe the, the uh, curl up and the shuttle run, um, they're all... Yeah, they can all be components of a healthy fitness routine. I kind of feel like the people who loved the presidential fitness test are the people who went on to love CrossFit. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Maybe boot camps. Yeah, there's just, you know, there's something for everyone. And all fitness experts seem to agree that the best exercise is the one that you will do. So, um, yeah, you got to find what works for you. That was Danielle Friedman, a journalist in New York and the author of Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. And thank you all for listening to All Sides with Anna Staver. That'll do it for this hour on 89.7 NPR News.